Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. On today's podcast, we've got physiotherapist Paul Skirfield back in the studio to discuss some topics surrounding running injuries and some common injuries that he sees in the clinic. Thanks for coming in to chat with us today, Paul. Thanks for having me. So you've had some experience with the Gold Coast Titans, and I'm sure you've come across lots of different running styles. So let's start by discussing the biomechanics of running compared with walking, jogging, and sprinting, and kind of how they differ and have different demands on the body. Sure. So That's um, a big one. <laughs> that, that is a big question. So when we start, uh, we'll start with walking. Yep. Uh, obviously, when we're walking, it's much slower paced. The load is distributed a lot more evenly across our body. Uh, and typically, you know, a walking gait, as you'd see when you watch people walking down the street, is um, a heel-toe action as our foot hits the ground. And generally speaking, we've at all times got one foot in contact with the ground. So we're really just transferring load left, right, left, right, left, right, always with one foot in contact. Uh, when we move into jogging, that pattern's relatively similar, uh, except we will most typically see that instead of having a heel toe uh, foot strike, we'll be landing on the midfoot or the forefoot. And oftentimes, especially as our running um, pace increases, we'll see that there's short periods of time where both feet are off the ground. Uh, and that's really what determines, you know, the, the difference between walking and, and power walking and then transitioning into jogging. And, and in the Olympics, when they've got power walking, that's one of the criteria is at all times you've got to have one foot on the ground. So right. it's, a, it's, a, it's a fault if you've, got, uh, if you've got both feet in the air. Okay. And then transitioning on from that, um, you know, upright running and, and, and sprinting. So obviously faster and faster again. But probably the most important thing is how the load is um, distributed throughout our body when we transition into at high level running. So typically at jogging at low intensities, the predominant muscles that absorb force are in uh, the more distal part of the leg. So your calves namely, um, which take about 50% of the, the running load in, in a jogging um, scenario. Whilst uh, in upright sprinting, that uh, calf load becomes significantly less as the more proximal muscles start to produce more force. So your hip extensors, the big muscles um, towards your trunk. So your hip extensors, what are they? So like your, your backside, so your glutes, yep. Yep. Your, your hamstrings, really anything that pulls your, your thigh backwards behind you. Right. Um, yeah, so that's, that's, they're probably the big, the big trademarks. And accordingly, the, the distribution of muscle load is, is really different from, uh, from jogging to running. Yeah. And so if I was a walker and then I wanted to take up jogging, um, would you say that's a, a smart thing to do, just go straight from walking into to jogging or sprinting? Yeah, perhaps not into sprinting, but um, there's not there's not too much of a, a big step from walking into into jogging. You can try power walking. It's not um, – I think you'd look good as a power walker. But, uh, <laughs> I wouldn't want to say that. <laughs> but, yeah, the, the distribution of muscle work is is relatively similar from walking to running. As we said, the, you know, the, the predominant load in both of those is going to be absorbed through – the calf complex. Yep. Uh, so yeah, it's a it's a pretty pretty small step. Pardon the pun from from walking to jogging. Okay. And so you've referenced the calf a couple of times. Um, why is that an important muscle when you're walking or jogging? Uh, so it, it comes down to largely just how those muscles function. So uh, let's take for example uh, at a jogging speed. So because there's not a huge amount of action around the hip or a lot of the the muscle action around the hip is relatively passive, meaning that it's not doing a huge amount of work. So a lot of that forward momentum is maintained by the calf pushing you back up into the air. So at your ankle, there's a lot of work being performed to maintain that momentum. Uh, Whilst, as I said, you know, as you get into higher running speeds, it becomes 
a much more active um, force through through those more proximal muscles. And and because they're working so hard and, and the ground contacts become shorter and shorter the faster we run, the ability for the calf muscle to effectively um, go from a shortened position to a lengthened position and contract becomes becomes really challenging. So you'll typically see in sprinting that the calf starts to function what we call isometrically, which is where the the angle at the joint doesn't change. So the muscle really just tenses to absorb force. And then the tendon that runs through the, so your Achilles tendon namely, that runs through the um, ankle joint starts to absorb a lot more of that force. So at higher running speeds, the tendons tend to have a lot more of a responsibility for producing or maintaining force. Whilst at slower running speeds, it's really about the, the actual muscle itself. Right. Okay. Oh, that's interesting. The uh, the difference from muscle to tendon. Now, if like obviously the the podcast today we're talking about running injuries. Um, so, what would be some of the the common um, running injuries as a clinician that you you tend to see? Yeah. So, uh, I think both statistically and in my experience, uh, patellofemoral pain is is the big one that we we typically see in the clinic with um, both uh, recreational and competitive runners. Yep. So patellofemoral pain generally just describes uh, pain in the front of the knee. Uh, it used to be a, a strict anatomical diagnosis where we thought it was the the interaction between the, the patella, your kneecap, and, and the thigh bone, but we now know there's probably a little bit more complexity than that and it's not as... Uh, not as clear cut, but that that certainly would be the the number one that we see. Okay, we'll also see uh, what we call uh, ITB frictional syndrome. So yep. the the band on the outside of your leg, known as your iliotibial band or ITB, can often cause friction on the outside of the leg, causing causing pain on the the lateral aspect of the knee. And then uh, we'll typically see uh, Achilles tendon injuries, patella, um, oh, perhaps less patella patella injuries in in low speed running, uh, but also. Um, what we call shin splints or maybe medial tibial stress syndrome are just a couple of examples of the the more common ones that we'll see. Yep. Do you see many um, muscle injuries around with running? Yeah. So certainly, as I alluded to, with running, the calf being the predominant um, muscle that is performing a lot of the work at lower speed runnings, we'll see calf strains that are not uncommon. So whether it's the the gastrocnemius or the soleus or, or one of the other plantar effect plantar flexors of the ankle, that's a, a pretty common injury that we'll see in in recreational distance runners. Okay. So people that are going for their morning park run are probably less likely to present with a hamstring or a quad injury, much, much more likely just because of the distribution of load to present with a calf injury. Right. Okay. And that does that come back to um, what you were speaking about earlier with regards to the faster you run, the more kind of upper muscles you use? Absolutely, yeah. So again, if we're if we're running re- really fast, if we're sprinting, uh, the the relative work in in the calf muscle actually decreases as as I said as it goes onto that tendon load, and the, the, um, the hamstrings and and the glutes and the quadriceps tend to work a little bit harder. So uh, it's about five point one meters per second, which is about eighteen kilometers an hour, just a little bit more. That's the peak amount of load that goes through your. Um, your calf muscles. So if you're running faster than that, it actually is going to take load away from your calf. All right. I'll have to run faster then. (laughs) So given there's a few common injuries um, that you see as a clinician to do with running, why don't we pick um, patellofemoral pain syndrome, or I believe that's known as runner's knee sometimes. Yes, it is. (laughs) Um, So if you could just uh, elaborate on on why that's um, common. Yeah, so that's that's 
it's a big question to undertake, really. Um, as I said, the, the the term patellofemoral pain may or may not be accurate um, in that we've got a little lot of uh, densely innervated structures in the knee that can cause pain. So uh, underneath the kneecap uh, or, or below the kneecap, rather, we've got uh, a fat pad, which is um, exactly as it sounds, a big, big, big chunk of fatty fatty tissue that helps absorb load around our knee. And, and as I said, with a, with a really dense innovation from the nerves, that can be a driver of the pain. Uh, we can get pain underneath the kneecap. So the actual cartilage itself isn't, isn't innovated, but if we uh, degradate or, or wear away that cartilage, the underlying bone might become irritated or inflamed. We can irritate the synovium. So there's a number of things that can, can cause that. And really the thing that we think is the biggest contributor to that is just uh, repetitive strain going through that knee. So uh, not to say that everyone that runs and everyone that has has load going through their knee is going to develop that pain. There's there's a lot more um, complexity to that, but uh, it, it typically is seen in response to a spike in training loads. So that's probably the number one thing that we'll see. So someone who's never run and then they decide, as I said, they want to do park run every week and then after four weeks they start getting aching in their knees. Or you could be a competitive runner that is just trying to go from half marathon distance to marathon distance and that increase in running distance uh, can, can be enough if it's not done incrementally to, yeah. to cause pain. Okay. So um, you just touched on it then about being incremental. So with your your load and the repetitive nature of running, would you say that it's important for someone who's changing the distance um, or the speed at which they're running to do it slowly or um, incrementally? Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. So the the evidence is a little bit mixed. There's a, a general generally thought a rule of 10%. So um, small 10% increases in load, which can occur weekly. But if you add that up pretty quickly, that's a 40% increase in load over over the course of a month, which mm. can can be quite high for a lot of people. Um, so then conservatively, some people will say 10% over over the course of a month. And really, if you're starting from a low base, you go from three kilometres a week, by the end of a month, you're going 3.3 kilometres a week, which is not a particularly big increase for a lot of people. So it's individual for everyone. I don't think there's a magic formula, but... Uh, but largely it's about gauging your your response and it, it just comes down to having a well-planned um, increase and change in load. Okay. So if I was wanting to increase my 3Ks every three days that I'm doing to um, reach my goal of 5Ks, how would you um, recommend I do that? Yeah, so I, I guess that all comes back to your running history. I think if you, Andrew, had been a um, half marathon runner two years ago, I think going from three to five Ks would be a pretty safe bet. But if it's someone who's never ran three Ks before, uh, working up to five Ks would take a lot longer. So in the first example, I think that'd be a pretty safe uh, thing if, you increment, if your increments were, say, 10% a week for four weeks uh, or even a little bit more, again, if you've got that running history behind you. But I'd be a little bit more conservative with um, with people who haven't spent much time on the, on the road yep. doing that work before. Okay. And um, do you say that age has any factor in that or, um, or do, you, do you think that age doesn't matter? G- given someone's level of experience of running, does age have a, a play a role in that? Uh, yeah, I, I don't think so other than the fact that as we age, we all generally start to feel our aches and pains a little bit more than, than when we were younger. So typically an older person with a new stimulus or new activity is, is more likely to develop an injury or be sore. But uh, I don't know that age necessarily um, determines the, the speed at which you can increase your, your running distance. So okay. um, also it's commonly thought that, that running, especially road running, will lead to – 
you know, more long-term injuries like the development of arthritis in the knees or, um, you know, similar type injuries, but the evidence certainly doesn't support that. So, in fact, a, a lot of, you know, distance runners, you know, um, will will be shown to have better um, joint health than than non uh, than non runners. Okay, so running on the road versus the treadmill versus on grass, does it play much of a role? Yeah, so it just depends on how the tissue is going to be loaded. So we know that uh, road compared to treadmill, for example, and um, there's a lot more flex in the treadmill. So as you're running on the treadmill, you're likely to experience much higher uh, contractile load. So things like your calf and your Achilles are, are likely to experience greater load uh, on the treadmill. So if you had an Achilles tendinopathy, I'd suggest that returning to running on the treadmill may not be the best thing to do. Yeah. Uh, similarly, uh, bone stress, so the, the rate of loading or your, your peak loading rate is going to be higher when you're running on, on hard surfaces. So if you're returning from uh, a bony stress injury, potentially that would be uh, – uh, potentially the treadmill might be the best place to, to begin your return to running. Okay. So if we could go with a bit of an example patient for you. So I'm 33 and I've come into you with a runner's knee and I've got maybe six months of experience as a runner and I run, yes, three to five Ks a week and I'm developing this this knee pain. What would be your recommendation if I wanted to get to a goal of 10, 10 kilometer run? So uh, it's, a, it's a great case example. Um, you don't look 33, that's for sure. Um, <laughs> I hope I look younger. <laughs> yes, that's what I was getting at. Um, I, I think, again, it, it comes back to whether you're experiencing pain or you have any symptoms. The, the, the three biggest things that I would suggest we need to look at when um, determining someone's suitability to increase their load is, one, their, their current loading or training history. So if you'd been sitting at uh, a relatively steady distance without developing any symptoms for a period of time, that, that would certainly... Um, be a tick in, in that box, suggesting that you might be appropriate to increase your load. The other two things is just really, number one, whether you have the tissue capacity to tolerate that increase in load. So we know that as running distance increases, the stress on the muscles and the joints is going to increase. So if your muscles are going to fatigue beyond a reasonable level as you increase your load, then you're perhaps not suitable to, to go up and increase. So again, if we're talking at a long, slow duration running, uh, typically the amount of work and the intensity that the calf will need to do is, is probably the most important. And then second to that would be the quadriceps, which helps mitigate some of that load around the knee. Uh, and then the final thing is is the mechanics. So always loathe to change mechanics too much in someone that is asymptomatic or doesn't have an injury. Having said that, we can always, we can, uh, always endeavour to improve performance mm-hmm. uh, in, in spite of injury. So getting a good biomechanical assessment is is probably important because there are a few things that, uh, again, whether it's from a performance point of view or an injury risk or, or injury rehabilitation point of view that we can look to address. And would a physiotherapist help with that biomechanical assessment? Yeah, so certainly something within the, the wheelhouse of physiotherapists. Uh, not all physios are, are going to um, delve into that area, but I, I dare say in most clinics there'd be uh, someone experienced that would would um, do a lot of work in that area. It's certainly something that we do in our clinic, yeah. Yep. And what are some – you mentioned about uh, quadriceps and your calf muscle. What would be some 
maybe uh, common exercises that you might prescribe to help someone uh, of my age wanting to to reach that goal of the 10Ks? Of your age. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I think it it comes down to how you're going to load in the gym. So getting strong to um, mitigate stress through the joints, which is taken up by the muscles, is really important. Uh, If you think of bodybuilders or rugby players or, or typically the guys that are going to lift really, really heavy, um, big big loads in the gym, uh, there's probably a number of ways that you can do that. Un- unfortunately, what we see with a lot of runners is that they just want to run and they don't want to lift or if they get into the gym to lift, they they often will lift uh, below the intensity that's really going to cause the adaptation that we want. So I think in terms of getting bang for buck with, with people that perhaps don't have a huge amount of desire to be in the gym, it's about finding really isolated exercises to, to work on those those areas that we want to want to address. So as we said, if the the calf and the quadricep are, are two of the big areas, something like a seated knee extension would be a really good uh, a really good exercise to try and develop some quadricep strength. So typically we'd be looking at relatively low repetition range, so anywhere below eight repetitions for anywhere between three to six sets. Two times a week would be would be great. As we get up into the higher number of sets, you're likely to develop some increase in muscle size, which is you know often thought to be a bad thing. But the more cross-sectional area you have through a muscle, the the better its ability to to attenuate force and, and absorb load. So that that's an important thing to to remember. Uh, and then from a calf point of view, just just really basic um, standing calf raises is is a great place to start. Whether yep. that's double leg or, or single leg calf raises. The important thing is, uh, again, whether it's double or single leg, that we don't compromise the the height of that calf raise. So making sure that we can get right up onto the tip of our toes, we can keep our heel in line with our our ankle joint, uh, and again, nice slow controlled exercise. If we end up bouncing off the, those calf raises, the load goes much more onto our tendon, which, as we said, um, is is not a bad thing for the tendon, but it uh, probably takes some of the stress away and and prevents adaptation in the calf, uh, and then. Of course, working the calf with the straight leg is is one thing, and, and we know as as physiotherapists um, that there's there's two prime uh, muscles in the calf that work, and mm-hmm. one of them is more active when the knee's straight, and one's more active when the knee's bent. So the other one would be just a seated calf raise, where uh, some machines in the gym will have it, where you'll sit and do the same thing and just lift your heel as high as you can off the ground. But if you don't have that, putting a, a kettlebell or a, a weight plate over the knee can be a good way to add um, external load to increase the intensity of that lift. And would you do that um, exercise only seated or could you do a standing calf raise with a bent knee? You could do a standing calf raise with a bent knee, yep, certainly. And uh, in doing that, you, you're obviously going to increase the amount of load going through your quadriceps, so you probably get good good bang for buck in both of those. The one thing you don't want is for the limiting factor in that exercise to be your quadriceps strength when you're trying to target your calf. Yep. So if you've got good quad strength and you're able to maintain a good position and, and get that load uh, through your calf and your calf be the, the limiting factor, then, then that'll be fine. But uh, oftentimes we'll see people, their, their quad gives out before their calf, so you, you lose a little bit of um, focus in that exercise sometimes. Right. Okay. Thanks for that, Paul. And uh, things like a single leg squat or a lunge or a split squat or Bulgarian split squat, are, are any of those um, sorts of exercises important? Yeah, absolutely. So um, all of those uh, are great exercises, uh, and I think if you're if you're inclined to be in the gym, they're all good things to incorporate, both from a, a muscle strength development, but also uh, the, a motor pattern and coordination point of view. I'm more thinking for the people that don't want to be in the gym. I, I'd probably prioritise the exercise that I said before that, but certainly if you if you're keen to get in the gym, then those can be really good exercises to to add strength around uh, you know 
the whole lower limb from the hip, uh, your glute muscles, your, your quads, your hamstrings, your calves. Yeah, they're great exercises too. Okay. So focusing predominantly on your isolated um, quadriceps and calf muscle strength, and then you could lead into more of those functional kind of exercises such as the squats and, and split squats. Absolutely. Yeah. And if I uh, didn't have access to a gym, how would I go about doing a leg extension exercise? So you can buy um, resistance bands, which you can wrap around the, the leg of a chair and, and wrap around your ankle and just sit in your chair, straighten your, straighten your leg against the resistance of the band. And, and that's actually a really good way to, to increase that quadricep strength. In, in a lot of ways, I actually prefer that to a seated knee extension just because the, the area that you get the most amount of stress on the quadricep muscle comes before the band gets too tight, if that makes sense. Yep. So you can produce a lot of force in that middle range of the muscle. Um, yeah, there's always ways around it. And failing that, if, if there's just no way that you can do a seated knee extension, there's a bunch of different good quadricep exercises that your physio can guide you through. Yep. And where would you um, be able to source one of those bands? Um, oh, eBay. I've bought, I've bought them off eBay and you can get some belters on eBay. So they're, they're pretty good. But in, in clinic as well, um, yep. so all the all sports clinics will hold TheraBand or some kind of resistance tubing. So most physio clinics will, will have them on hand. Yep. Okay. And is there a particular colour of band that you'd recommend to start with? Um, the colour depends on the brand. So sometimes green's heavy, sometimes green's medium, depending on the brand that makes them. So I won't lead you astray by giving you a specific band, but generally speaking, as, as heavy and as thick and as high level as resistance as you can tolerate would be would be your starting point. Okay. And you obviously wouldn't do the exercise if there was pain? Uh, not if there was an unacceptable level of pain. So you might, if you've, especially if you've got um, anterior knee pain that we were talking about before, you might have a small level of discomfort whilst you're doing it. So again, it's highly subjective, but a two or three out of 10 as, as you're doing the exercise provided it's not getting worse and you're not uh, substantially worse after M- may be appropriate. But again, that's probably something you need to be guided by your physio by. Yep. But, but generally speaking, a little bit of discomfort if it's, um, if it's for, uh, for a purpose can be okay. Okay. All right. Um, so thank you, Paul, for coming on the show today to talk a bit more about runner's knee or patellofemoral pain syndrome. And um, But we are getting on the, the next episode to dive into a little bit more about calf strains. And I would also like to acknowledge how good your moustache looks and good to see you back in November. <laughs> But um, thanks very much for for coming in today, mate. Thank you. And uh, guys, be sure to leave us a rating and review if you like the show. 